0: Tonight, we're going to talk about going home. We're talking about going home. Um, I grew up in a little town in South Oklahoma called Duncan. And whenever I talk about Duncan, I start talking like Duncan. So pardon me if I slip into a former version of myself. Uh, when I would go home to Duncan from college, uh, driving down Highway 81, I would get to the outskirts of Duncan. Duncan, I would see the green sign that said Duncan, population 20,731 on it. And I am telling you that uh, from the time I left home to go to college for about 10 years after that, well into my 20s, into my adulthood, well into my married life, when I would drive through the outskirts, past that sign, weird things would happen to me. It was a weird experience because home for me was a lot of different things. It was a very complicated mixed bag of of stuff. Uh, Home was the place where... Uh, where I achieved a lot. It's where I kind of decided that the way that I was going to make my mark on the world was to be ambitious and to achieve and to do a lot of stuff. And so I did a lot of stuff. In high school, um, at the time, I graduated my high school with the highest GPA ever. It was not because I was smart. It was because I cheated. Um, uh, Through high school, I was an all-state golfer. Not because I was a great golfer, but because I cheated. Um, In high school, uh, actually earlier than that, it was in elementary school, Home was the place where I developed what would become a long uh, battle, significant battle with pornography, sexual struggles. Um, Home was where I began to uh, use girls for my own pleasure. Home was a place of deep anger for me for a period of my life. Um, I was so angry as a middle schooler um, that I would chase my brothers and my mom around the house with a knife. That's real. Um... Home was a place where um, I achieved. I won all the awards that my high school offered. I was the youth group kid. Um, I I didn't just go to one youth group. I went to two youth groups. But the reason I went to the second youth group is because I thought I was too cool for the first youth group. Um, I was a part of all the clubs. I did it. When I won the big award at the end of my senior year, I stood up on stage and I... I thanked Jesus for all that he had done in my life, and I felt like a fraud. Because home was all those things for me at the same time. I mean, it just was a mixed bag my whole life. And and it was that way for a long time. More recently, that's changed, and as as Sarah and I have kind of made our own home here in Tulsa and and had kids and stuff, that, that has begun to change, and I'm grateful for that. But home is hard. Home's hard. What's home like for you? Uh, for some of you, it's it's a warm, sweet place. You go there, and um, you're refreshed. Your family loves you. My family love me. Uh, they love you. They give you attention. Um, they affirm you. You're accepted there. For some of you, home is not that. It's hard. You don't feel like you belong. You don't feel like maybe you have a seat at the table. You don't. Your voice doesn't always matter. Um... And that's not to even mention the myriad of personal things that we bring to the table at home. Tonight, this passage talks about going home. And it's not going home through Highway 81 to Duncan or I-40 to Fort Smith or whatever road to your home. It's going home for good. And this is uh, what the Bible holds out as the Christian Uh, The Christian victory. This is the end game. The Bible doesn't talk about heaven and the new heaven and the new earth as a kind of mystical, dreamy thing. It talks about it as a concrete reality that is coming. Just like the sun is going to rise again tomorrow, heaven is coming for the Christian. Let's read it together uh, from Revelation chapter 21. It says this. And uh, Austin, awesome. can you kind of click through that? You're going to have to pay attention to me at some level. Great. 21 verse 1. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is uh, the Apostle John getting his vision from Jesus. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And down to 22, verse 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word for us tonight. This passage talks about coming home. And let me tell you this. If you are in Christ, which I know is not all of you in here, but if it's not you, listen in with particular attention. If you are in Christ... This is a vision of coming home for the first time. This is your reality. This is the sure and certain future hope for you. We're going to talk about this very simply. First, we're going to talk about what is not going to be there. And second, what is going to be there. Because the passage actually lays that out for us. It talks about things that will be no more. And it talks about things that will be. So let's look at that negative one first. What is not going to be there? It's not negative. It's actually really positive. What's not going to be there? The first thing that's not going to be there that we see is, is the sea and the night. The sea and the night. twenty-one-one um, and 22.5. We talked about uh, this idea of the sea uh, in the third week here at RUF. So I don't pretend that you remember that. But here's what it was talking about. Um, in... In Revelation 4, chapter 4, there's a picture, a vision that John is given of of Jesus, of the Lamb on the throne. And the implications of that are that he is reigning in this world right now. And it says that the sea was out in front of him, and it was like glass. It was like glass. Now, what you may or may not understand is that in antiquity, and very much in, in the time of the Bible, the imagery and the picture of the sea was a symbol, it was an image for chaos. The sea was the unknown place. It was the, the place where scary things happened, right? S- uh, ships would sail out to sea and they would be destroyed and it would it would instill fear and panic in people. We see this in the Bible in a number of ways. Right out of the beginning in Genesis 1.1, it said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 2, it said, a- And there, there was uh, a sea. There was a great darkness And that God, His Spirit, it ascended and He was hovering above the sea, above the dark waters. The sea was kind of the unknown. It was all that was out there that wasn't known. Later on in Revelation, actually in the Bible, and then in Revelation, it talks about the beast and the dragon, right? Satan, it said it comes out of the sea. And so, in Revelation 4, when Jesus is on the throne and it says the sea is like glass... What that what that image is showing us is that Jesus is ruling in this world right now and that from his vantage point in the throne room of heaven, everything's under control. There is no chaos from Jesus's vantage point. Satan was defeated at the cross and in the resurrection. He's on a leash right now and one day he'll fully be put away. It is not chaotic from Jesus's point of view, as chaotic as your life may feel. But friends, in the new heaven and the new earth, when we go home, there will be no more sea. It says the sea was no more. It also says there is no more night. There's no more night. There's no more darkness. There's no more evil. If there's no more sea and no more night... That means several things for us. And we're going to look at this quickly and kind of camp out here in just a minute. That means if there's no more sea, if there's no more unknown, there's no more fear. That means that you don't have to live in fear of what may happen when you walk across campus late at night. Or downtown when you're walking to your car and it's dark. That may mean, that will mean that there is no more fear of abuse. That will mean that there's no more fear of what your parents will say to you. And how they'll shame you when you come home next time. That means there will be no more fear. There's no more uncertainty and unknown. About anything in your life. Do you want to know what that means? There is no more anxiety in heaven. And all God's people said amen. <laughs> like. You will never worry ever again about anything. You will never be scared again. You will never wonder if you're going to be worthy again. It's no more. There's no more sea. There's also no more night. That means there's no more depression. That means there's no more black cloud that that doesn't leave. That means there's no more days when you just want to get back in bed or stay in bed all day. That means that you don't spend all of your free time wondering if those people like you, and then you convince yourself that, you, that they don't, and so you stay in your room. It's no more. There's no more night. There's no more sea. There's no more of any of those things that weigh you down and burden you as much as they do. There's another thing that there's not any more of, and this one is huge. That's huge. This one's huger. 22, verse 3. Look down with me, if you will. There's no more curse. There's no more curse. The curse is gone. What does that mean? Uh, It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. This is the very last page of the very last book of the Bible. And that's seemingly an interesting thing for it to say, but not if you understand, essentially, the very first thing on one of the very first pages of the Bible. So what happens in the beginning of the Bible, is I kind of referenced already, in Genesis 1, it talks about God's creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, it further talks about that creation. In Genesis 3, it starts talking about mankind as part of that creation, how he interacts with God. And God has said, look, everything is good. And you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to live in this world and take care of it and and produce from it and make a city, make culture, make babies. Basically, take the world, have dominion over it, rule over it, subdue it, and make it awesome. And Adam and Eve said, no, we don't want you telling us what to do. We're going to be our own bosses. We want autonomy from you, God. We don't want to be dependent on you. And so they rebelled against him. This is called the fall. We talk about it a lot because it matters a lot. And right after the fall, God comes into the scene, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 13, 14. It says this, that God looked at the serpent and said, Cursed are you. And then he looked at the woman and said, Cursed are you. And then he looked at the whole creation and said, Cursed are you. Friends, from the fall until now, this world is under a curse. It's under a curse. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be. Uh, do we have any Chicago Cubs fans in the room? A couple? Yes? Kevin Kim, Victoria, who we got? Joey, a little bit. Back there? Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you may not know anything about the curse uh, of the Billy Goat, but if you are a Chicago Cubs fan, you probably do. The curse of the Billy Goat... Originated in 1945. Here's what happened: A man by the name of William Cyanus. William Cyanus was uh, he. Uh, he was a Chicago man. He owned a little bar uh, tavern called Billy Goat Cavern in Chicago. Uh, Mr. Cyanus was at the Chicago Cubs World Series baseball game in 1945 with his pet Billy Goat, and um, as the story goes. Uh, The people around him thought his billy goat smelled bad, which I can't imagine smelling good, and they uh, got a hold of the ushers, and they had him kicked out of the game, the World Series game four at Wrigley Field. Um, As he's walking out, the story goes, or the legend goes, that uh, Mr. Sianis looked out at the crowd, looked at the people around him and said, them cubs, they ain't going to win no more. And it was kind of believed that that curse that he invoked ...meant they would never win another National League title nor a World Series. You have to win one before you win the other. And look, y'all, until last fall, that curse was holding true. So for 71 years, it's like, I mean, yeah, that's kind of weird, but is it real? Because we can't win a pennant. We can't win the World—we can't make it in the World Series. And, then, and last fall, they won it all, and so, you know, as a hoax, right? The, the curse that the Bible talks about is not a hoax. It is not a joke. It is not some, uh, like, uh, hologram that's out in the world. That, like, we go for it, and it's not there. This world is cursed. And it. I don't even have to convince you of that. Things out there are not the way they're supposed to be. Things in here... Are not the way they're supposed to be. Things between you and between others, they're not the way they're supposed to be. They're messed up. It's hard. It's fallen. And we feel that in almost every aspect of our life every single day. There's a curse in this world. Um, And what this passage is saying is that in that world, when we get home, there will be nothing that is a curse. The curse is lifted. And the way that the Bible goes on to talk about that in Revelation, some other places, the way you kind of piece that together is that um, there is coming this world, and God is going to refine He's going to refine the world that we have now as through fire and make it something better. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a minute, but basically it's this picture that God is not going to start over. He's taking what we have around us. And we're gonna, and he's gonna take it through some sort of transformation process, like a purifying through fire, in a way that it burns away the impurities of metals. That we're gonna get to heaven, to the new heaven, the new earth, and we're gonna walk around and say, I, I recognize that river, but, but it's just so much more beautiful than it ever was. And we're gonna go to downtown Tulsa, and we're gonna look out on the Arkansas River and say. God, that looks familiar, but this river's got water in it. <laughs> like there's not like tires showing halfway in. Um, you're going to go to your neighborhood and you're going to see that big tree that kind of anchors the neighborhood that, that a park is around and you're going to notice it, but it's going to be big and more lush and more beautiful and that branch over there isn't going to be dying. It's going to be this world. But without the curse. And I'm not a very creative person. I, I kind of hit the end of my imagination somewhere in there. But don't let your imagination stop. Take that thought on into infinity. That's what it's going to be and more. No more curse. Nothing will be broken anymore. The curse will be no more. Thirdly on this. There will be no more tears, nor death, nor crying, nor pain, nor mourning. Verse, chapter twenty-one, verse four. Are you ready for that, or what? Every day, I'm ready for it. You may love your life. I, on most days, I, I genuinely love my life. I'm thankful to Jesus that I'm not, that, that I don't struggle with chronic depression. Some of you do, and my heart is so heavy for you. Most days, I'm generally satisfied with life, and I want this every day. No more tears, y'all. That's as good as it sounds. No more sadness, no more crying, no more anything. The degree uh, with which you have suffered in this life is the degree to which you will look forward to this day and long for it. Long for it. Um, if you're a freshman or you're new to Oklahoma, or, you're, or you didn't grow up in Oklahoma, uh, one of the things you'll learn really quickly about springtime in Oklahoma is stuff like happened yesterday and today. That it'll, it'll be a very clear day, and then starting at about 3 o'clock, uh, these big storms will roll in. And they're spotty. Uh, some of them will hit. Some of them will look like they're going to hit, and they'll just kind of disappear, and all that stuff. It's just Oklahoma weather Um, You may think that it's totally random, and these storms are sporadic, and and they have no method or or rhyme to them, but that's not true. There is an incredible amount of science that goes into these things, and I've become somewhat of an amateur meteorologist. No big deal. And um, I really kind of am. And uh, so... Uh, One of the things you'll notice is that the dry line will set in uh, right around Oklahoma City in the I-35 corridor at about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And then the low-level moisture will feed in from the Gulf. Um, But the CAPE values have to be high enough in order to provide the the energy for the system so it will materialize. But if all those things come together, it's going to be storm day. And there might even be tornadoes. But if the CAPE value is not high enough, it's just going to be high wind and hail. So... Stay on your alert, right? Stay weather alert this spring. Here's what's true, though. As bad as those storms may be, and sometimes they're bad and they're really scary. I spent last spring in the basement of Hardesty with um, Tally Harris and who else? was Paolo, out there? Hunter Hart. A handful of y'all were down there. We got to spend about three hours because of tornadoes. But it's the weirdest thing because it can be black out there and it can be awful. And sixty mile an hour wind and hail and even tornadoes. And then like thirty minutes later, it can be blue skies. It can totally clear up and you're walking around campus and yeah, the sidewalks may be wet, but it's just like no big deal, nothing happened. When we get home, if you're if you're in Christ, when you get home, The storm that lasted for a season of your life or that has not stopped for years, it will be done. And it will be blue skies. And if you prefer day, it's going to be clear blue skies of the day. If you like evening time, it's going to be the beautiful sunset of the evening. If you like night time, it's going to be dark with stars. It's going to be awesome. There is going to be no more sadness, no more tears, no more crying, no more storm. No more of any of the stuff that makes your life as miserable as it is. No more broken relationships with your family, with your friends. Friends are hard, y'all. They're really hard. Really hard. With boys, with girls, in marriages, no more brokenness in relationships. No more tears. No more insecurities about whether or not people like you, about whether or not you're going to be asked out, or if, if anyone will ever say yes. No more struggle with your sexuality. No more wondering if there'll ever be an outlet for you to, to engage in love with anyone. No more wondering if your life is a mistake. No more feeling like you're a mistake. No more crushing expectations from others about all those things that everyone thinks you should be, but you know you aren't, but feel like you need to be. No more shame. No more cutting comments from mom and dad. No more jabs from uh, your shorty sisters. or No more uh, mean words from your fraternity brothers. No more any of it. No more porn binges, no more hookups, no more alcohol, no more drugs. No more being used. No more laziness and procrastinating that makes you feel so worthless and yet you can't stop doing it. No more getting advan- taken advantage of and wondering if it was your fault. No more yelling. No more. No more. None of it. Any of it. All of it. Never again. Forever. That will not be there at home. Home is is not where those places, those things are. This world is where those things are. If there is a desire in you, C.S. Lewis... It says, if you find in yourself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that you were created for another world. It's coming. It's coming. What is going to be there, though? Those things aren't going to be there. What is going to be there? All things. All things. Everything that's good. Look at chapter 21, verse 5, real quick. It says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, which just means look, he's He's inviting John to look at the world and says, look, I've made all things new. So what's going to be there? Everything that hasn't been burned away, everything that isn't impure, everything that is good, right, true, beautiful, real is going to be there. It's not going to be a new world. It doesn't say that it's going to be behold, look, all new things. It just says all things new. It's more like. Everything's going to be renewed. It's more like a restoration than new construction. All things are going to be new. Look, um, as as I mentioned, I'm not super imaginative. I don't really, I don't read a lot. I'm not big into fantasy and and stuff like that. I appreciate those of you who are, and I kind of live vicariously through you sometimes. Um, But I will tell you this: we're in the middle of our third um, home remodel. And there is something, I wish I had words for it, unbelievably satisfying about seeing things that were ugly and decrepit and run down made into something that I hope is beautiful, right? That we think is beautiful. It is so satisfying to take something that is old and make it renewed. And it's that experience of walking in, right, or seeing, watching the shows, whatever, in the before and after picture. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, that's what it was. But I see it. I see where that wall was. Or I see where that, you know, that, that window was. But now they have these other things. And it's really amazing. And, and somewhat addicting. And the right thing that happens in our hearts when, when we see and experience stuff like that, that's what this, this idea of all things new or renewed is getting at. It's going. The transformation is going to amaze us. It's going to be incredible. So, two quick applications on that: Uh, the things that you love now in this world, uh, you're not going to stop loving them. Then, if you love golf now, golf's there. If you love uh, animation, animation is there. If you love um, engineering, engineering projects ad infinitum forever. Except they're not solving problems because there's no problem. It's just like building new cool stuff. Like Elon Musk is going to be unemployed. It's going to be so amazing. like It's going to be awesome. Technology will just go on forever. We will never cease to to uncover the complexities and the beauties of this world. Get ready. Second quick application on that is if that world is coming... Where everything you can imagine and long for right now is going to be there, then that means in this life, you don't have to spend all your money getting it. You don't have to go to every concert, you really don't. You don't have to buy that car, or that shirt, or those shoes, or those yoga stretch pants that are $140. You don't have to buy that thing. You don't have to squeeze the life out of this life with every single penny you have because all of your wildest dreams will be made true then. And you can take that money and use it for the redemption and the renewal of this world right now. You can give it toward things that bring people closer to seeing this home. You can support missionaries. You can support RUF interns. They would be very happy about that. You can uh, give money to the poor and give them a better chance at life so they can get a job and and get out of poverty. You can give your money to so many things that are worthwhile. But you will never do that unless you believe this world is coming. I promise you. You just won't. You won't. Unless you believe that it's going to be this good and this real. You will try to squeeze every ounce of life out of this life. But home is coming. You don't have to do that. The next thing that's going to be there is that there's going to be resolution to the distance we feel from God. What do I mean by that? Look at verse twenty-one, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verse 2 and 3. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Way back in the beginning of the Bible, which I've already talked about a few times. There in that first idyllic, picturesque setting in the garden is Adam and Eve and God. And it said they walked together in the cool of the day. It's dreamy probably a fine mist and probably the sun's rays coming it's it would have been amazing they were with god after the fall god sends them out of the garden they're not with god in the rest of the bible very clearly beginning in genesis 17 with abraham continuing on with david uh, with moses in exodus 7 with david in second samuel 7 with all of the prophets echoing it on in the new testament here is the refrain that is there 25, 28 times total in the New Testament. It gets picked up in the, in the Old Testament. It gets picked up in the New Testament. It says something like this. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. So God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. And generations come and generations go. And God does not leave man to try and figure out how they can get back into the garden and be with God. God says, I'm going to come out into your world. And I'm going to pursue you, Abraham, and I'm going to make your family special. And Moses, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to use you to bring your, my people out of Egypt. David, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to make you the king of my people. And Jesus, remember the deal that we made before the beginning of the world? It's time. I'm going to send you to go be with our people. John 1 14. And the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. The apostle Paul in Corinthians says that it's not just that God is among us. It's not just that Jesus was in the middle of us. It said that he comes into us. And he says that our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. That That passage is not about you not smoking or getting tattoos or drinking. That passage is Paul's way of saying, "Ooh, look what God did. He has come near to us. He can't get any nearer than in us until that temple that we've become. All of a sudden, God is with us physically again in the new heaven, new earth. That's home. It's the culmination of all of the Bible's tension of how is God going to get back into the presence of man? How is man going to get back in the presence of God? Resolved in Revelation 21. The new, the new Jerusalem, the bride, comes down and is with God forever. Forever. You'll never wonder if God cares about you anymore. You'll never wonder if He listens to you. You'll have Him. You'll see Him. And that's the last thing tonight. You will have His face. You'll have his face. Look down in 22, verse 4 and 5. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Two things, and I'm done. A few weeks ago, we were down in Louisiana, and we were driving around. Um, A couple of us were in the uh, truck driving to a work site, and if you drive with Brent... Uh, on a truck to the work site, you listen to sermons. So, uh, that's the most boring thing ever. But, um, we were listening to a guy named Ray Cortese, amazing pastor down in Florida. And he was talking about the face of God. And, um, in that sermon, he was talking about just how all this scientific research, um, shows how babies need their parents' faces. They need that stimulation, that contact, the vocal, the touch. They need this right here. And the, the research is amazing. They would put electrodes on them and stuff, and when a parent would turn his or her face from the child, anxiousness, crying, missing them, screaming. When they would turn back to them, calm, blood pressure drops. It's amazing. What do the kids need? Their face. They need a face. It's it's why FaceTime exists. It's why Google Hangouts are a thing. It's why Skype was invented. It. We want the face. It's nice to talk on the phone, but we want the face. Being a missionary around the world has been changed forever because of this stuff. It's no longer like, see you later. I'm getting on a ship and sailing to the other part of the world, and I may or may not ever see you again. It's like, yeah, I'll probably, uh, we're going to be at the Bahamas. There's internet signals, so I'll see you there, and then I'll get you again on the west coast of Africa. And then probably, you know, like the sh- the ship's got internet on it. Not even to mention airplanes. Gosh, why are we riding ships anymore, Brent? <laughs> um, like, you get the face. It matters. Uh, I'm, I'm reading this book. Uh, it was recommended to me. It's not a sci-fi book. I told you something. It's called Just Mercy, and it's about a, a, a lawyer who graduated from Harvard Law School and, as his profession, went into nonprofit law down in Alabama and Georgia, and. Um, his The people he started seeing were people on death row who essentially have no hope. I mean, they don't have any legal hope. You get on death row and you get in prison, and there's no hope really in their day-to-day life. And um, he's talking about uh, this one guy named Ian. <clears throat> and he said, we decided, um, we meaning his kind of nonprofit law firm, we decided to publish a report to draw attention to the plight of children in the United States who had been sentenced to die in prison, I wanted to photograph some of our clients in order to give life, uh, to give the life without parole sentences imposed on children a human face. So he wanted to in, in capture their faces so that the, he could tell the stories. Florida was one of the few states who allow this, and to my delight, they agreed to allow me to come to Ian and be in the same room with him with an outside photographer. As soon as the visit was over, Ian immediately wrote me a letter. Listen to this letter. Dear Mr. Stevenson, I hope this letter reaches you in good health and everything is going well for you. The focal point of this letter is to thank you for the photo session with the photographer and obtain information from you. How I can obtain a good amount of photos. As you know, I've been in solitary confinement approximately 14 and a half years It's like the system has buried me alive and I'm dead to the outside world. Those photos mean so very much to me right now. All I have is $1.75 in my inmate account. If I send you a dollar of that, how many of the photos will that purchase me? In my elation at the photo shoot today, I forgot to mention that today, June 19th, was my deceased mom's birthday. I know it's not a big significance, but reflecting on it afterwards seems symbolic and special that the photo shoot took place on my mother's birthday I don't know how to make you feel the emotion and importance of those photos, but to be real, I want to show the world my face so I can show them that I'm alive. I want to look at those photos and feel alive. It would really help with my pain. I felt joyful today during the photo shoot. I wanted it to never end. Every time you all visit and leave, I feel sad. But I capture and cherish those moments in time, replaying them in my mind's eye, feeling grateful for human interaction and contact. But today, just the simple handshakes we shared were a welcome addition to my sensory-deprived life. Please tell me how many photos I can get. I want those photos of myself almost as bad as I want my freedom. Thank you for making a lot of the positive occurrences that are happening in my life possible. I don't exactly know how the law led me to you, but I thank God it did. I appreciate everything you and EJI are doing for me. Please send me some photos, okay? He needs to see his face so he can be reminded that he's alive. Friends, when you see God's face, not only will you know that he is alive and that every promise he has made throughout scripture and throughout your life is coming true, you will know that you're home. And you will know that you're finally alive. Instead of closing there, let me challenge you with this. If this is your hope, if you're going home one day, tell others how great it's going to be. Invite them home, not for a, for a night, not for a weekend. Invite them home forever. If it's going to be like this, bring people with you. They need life also. And the source of life is there waiting to welcome you. It's God's face and you get it forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we will have your face. And I pray, I pray that you would convince us that you are bringing us home. Make that real in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives right now. Even as we sing this song about feasting with you, about being with you solidify it and let it give us resolve to go and to tell others about what home is going to be like don't don't let us be embarrassed father give us courage in jesus name we pray amen